This is Archive Atlanta, episode 215, Atlanta Baha'i. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I could not be more excited to share this week's episode with you guys. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Layla Yavari, who became the chief archivist of the Atlanta Baha'i Assembly in January of this year. And in that short time, she has learned so much about Atlanta's earliest Baha'i history, including people, places, and all of these wild events that make up this century of history. For so many Atlantans, the only thing they might know about the Baha'i community is the building headquarters on Edgewood Avenue. At least that was my case. But I learned so much about so many places around the entire city and how it interconnects with all of Atlanta's past history as well. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. So excited. All right. So first, you tell us your name and introduce yourself and uh, what we're going to talk about today. So my name is Layla Yavari. Um, I've already forgotten your second question. What are we talking about today? (laughs) I'm going to interject because I want to talk about how we met because I love it. So I gave my TEDx talk at Emory and it was mostly just my family and like three friends. And then you were there and I was like, oh my God, a fan um, with your parents, which was so cute. And we took a picture and you started talking to me about this project and immediately I was like, yes, no, I have to understand all of this. So then we had coffee at Starbucks, rest is history. Um, and I've just, I'm so like excited about what you're doing. And then we went to a cemetery together, which is a whole other story, which I'm so excited to share and trying to tell these stories. Um, and so for me, I'll just say like, all I knew about Baha'i was that building on Edgewood. Um, and most people didn't even, I think, don't even know the building's there. I've been so far telling people about talking to you and just screenshotting the building. And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that thing. So I cannot wait to talk about it and uh, have everybody in Atlanta learn more about it. There is a exhibit that's going on, right? Yeah. So um, I became the chief archivist for the Atlanta Baha'i community in January. Um, of this year. Of this year. Okay. So it's very new. Yeah. <laughs> and I've just been gathering and learning all this history. Um, so the Baha'is have kept, the Atlanta Baha'is specifically, have kept a really thorough archive for the last 80 years, but it's basically just been sitting kind of in a storage unit waiting for people to organize it. Undigitize. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the Baha'i community is small, which is, I think, why nobody's really, like, heard, a lot of people haven't heard of it before, and so there's not a lot of, you know, like, manpower in that sense. It's, like, just volunteer-based. So I moved back home. I'm from Atlanta, and I wanted to help organize and digitize these archives. And so as I was putting it together, I was like, this is an amazing story. We should do an exhibit to showcase these archives that we have because they're really valuable, I think, you know? And we have a lot of just so much like documentation, every letter, so many I saw it all typed up. It's like, today I had coffee. (laughs) Exactly. Very official. Like, I know what everybody was doing on any given week, it feels like, at this point. Um, I found some photos. Like, the oldest photo we have is from the 1890s, which is incredible, of Olga Fink when she was a child. Very cool. So... So yeah, so that's kind of how I started with with the project, and we decided to put on this exhibit, which basically just goes until 1949 when the center was yeah. built. Yeah, and we talk, we'll talk about this later, but you know, there's more history past this time. It's just yeah. we're gonna cover we're gonna cover you know some general history and then some Atlanta people and connections, and there's so many places around. I mean, whether the house is there or not, I was just amazed by how many places in Atlanta have connections to. 
So for anybody that doesn't know, me included, give us a little general Baha'i history, right, of of the religion in general. Right. So the Baha'i faith um, began in 1863 in Persia, so modern-day Iran, but at the time Persia. And the Baha'is basically believe in something called progressive revelation is one of the tenets of the Baha'i faith, which is that every religion and any prophet manifestation of God builds on itself. So it all comes from the same source, the same God. So Jesus, we believe in Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, and the prophet for this day and age, Baha'u'llah. So Baha'is follow the um, writings of Baha'u'llah is the name. So that's where the the name okay. Baha'i faith and comes I saw, from. Okay. And yeah. I saw that in the notes. Got yeah. It. And so, um, yeah, he revealed that he was a manifestation in Persia in 1863. So it was a very Eastern religion until, and that's kind of what we were talking about of how did it come West, until pretty much the turn of the century. It really started picking up over, I think, I believe it began a lot of it in Europe, and then it slowly moved to the United States as well in like that first decade of the 20th century, and then it slowly started growing from there. Um, And it didn't start coming to the South until even yeah, slightly later. later on. So the prophet Baha'u'llah, his son, Abdu'l-Baha, after Baha'u'llah's passing, he took over the Baha'i faith. His name is Abdu'l-Baha. And Abdu'l-Baha actually came to the United States in 1912. So that's where oh. so many people learned about oh. the Baha'i faith. Was where he came did he here. go? All over. To, oh, oh I so mean, it wasn't one state. He no, traveled. he was okay. in New York. He was in Maine. He went to Chicago. He went to California. He went to all these different places I couldn't even name. And actually, he was invited to come to Atlanta by Dr. Oakshet. The oh. first year Dr. Oakshet moved to Atlanta, he invited Abdu'l-Baha to come. And he didn't go. He wasn't able oh. to come to the South. Yeah, okay. deep South. So then that leads us, though, to Dr. Oakshet. Yes. Because the story starts here. Yes. I mean, within Atlanta with him. Yep. So he is, he's a white man originally from England? Yes, originally from England. And uh, he had like three doctorates, I, to my understanding. Yeah, and learned like nine languages. Yeah, or like Gaelic and Latin and <laughs> I think like Greek and something. I don't know, these... So he was a very literate man. Um, So he had a doctorate, I think, in philosophy, in medicine, and in theology. And so he was a priest. And somehow when he was studying medicine in Chicago, he met one of these very early um, well-known Baha'is named Lua Getzinger. And we don't know when he became a Baha'i, but we know that he was taught the Baha'i faith through Lua Getzinger. Um, And he became a Baha'i and was very devoted to being a Baha'i. And at the time there was this sort of understanding that you could still be whatever religion you were previously and also be a Baha'i. It was about living that sort of Baha'i life, which essentially is just the belief in the unity of all mankind. Like it's very, the Baha'i faith distilled down very simply is just striving for world peace and world unity. And so he was a Catholic priest. And so he remained as a priest. And when he moved to Atlanta, he opened his own church, the liberal Catholic church. But according to a lot of the future Baha'is that attended his sermons, he would always be talking about the Baha'i faith and Baha'u'llah yeah. in his church. It was a little church. bit subversive. Like, it was, it was like, a little subversive. Welcome to the liberal Catholic church exactly. where we're going to talk about Baha'i stuff. Exactly. Actually, Raymond Lindsay, who we'll talk about later, um, he talks about how he went to Dr. Oaksha after one of his sermons and was like, I want to study to become a priest. <laughs> And Dr. Oakshed gave him this book called Baha'u'llah and the New Era and was like, actually, there's something better waiting for you. Wow. Oh, so it is very confirmed that that's what he was doing. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So in the 1920s, that sort of the Baha'i administration started moving away from that and asking people to just be Baha'i, declare to be a Baha'i, which 
we were we talking, talking about, about this because that's what I kept seeing in the notes too is apparently to join you have to declare yeah. is that just a verbal process is it so written? it's purely for tracking and keeping records and census yeah to say I officially became yes a Baha'i on this date so um it's just a card you just sign a card oh yeah oh okay yeah okay, and then you send it to the Baha'i national offices in Chicago so they receive those records, and now modern day, obviously, you get put into an online database so you can access all of your like oh, okay. voting is there, you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. To take part in Baha'i administrative affairs, you have to officially be a Baha'i, but otherwise, the Baha'i faith is open to okay everybody. And so, Dr. Oakshed is he's in Atlanta, the only one doing this. Are we confident, kind of saying yeah. that? But and so, is he bringing or inviting anyone to Atlanta? Yeah. So he was there was all these travel teachers at the time. So. I can't. I don't have an uh, an exact number. How many people were Baha'is in the United States at the time? I have no idea. I imagine it was a tiny number. I think um, the statistics came out this year of how many Baha'is are in the United States, and it's like 177,000. Oh, like it's tiny, yeah. you know. So I can't even imagine at that time yeah. like <laughs> how many people there were. But um, so because there was so few Western Baha'is that were over here. People were giving talks all around the country yeah. to sort of like teach more about the Baha'i faith to people that were interested. And this was also a time where I think there was this movement where a lot of, especially upper middle class society, was very interested in like mysticism. Yes. Yeah. And so I think initially that's how a lot of people became Baha'is until like the depression, which hit a lot of a, oh. a much different demographic. And talking about the elimination of extreme poverty and riches is like one of the tenets of the Baha'i faith as well. So I think that really spoke to people in the oh. depression and brought in a whole new demographic. But anyway, so I think Dr. Oakshet, he was inviting people to come and speak in Atlanta at this time. Um, for instance, he was inviting Louis Gregory. Yes. And I want to talk about Louis Gregory because yeah. while he wasn't in Atlanta, had a big impact. He was. He was a black man born in Charleston. So he's from South Carolina. He was a Howard Law graduate. So he was a practicing lawyer. And he became a Baha'i and actually was married um, to a white woman named Louisa, Louis and Louisa, which is oh, funny. <laughs> um, and so they were the first interracial marriage in the Baha'i community um, in their early Really? We talked about this. This is like... Yeah. yeah. I have to look up the actual date because I don't still, remember. But yeah. still illegal. I mean, yeah. It very... Was, yeah. <laughs> definitely <laughs> illegal. And they actually couldn't travel. He was traveling so much giving these Baha'i talks and she, a lot of the times, couldn't travel with him, I of bet. course, for safety purposes. So, so yeah. So Louis Gregory was um, giving a lot of talks, especially in the Deep South, of yeah. course. And so Dr. Oakshet would invite him to give these talks at like Morehouse. Oh, mm-hmm. so he was giving them at Morehouse and... He was giving oh. them at Morehouse and all these different universities all around Atlanta, especially like where now the AUC, um, which is really cool to look back. And he would stay at the Butler Street YMCA. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. More history for that building. Exactly. Because that's the only place he, he could stay, yeah. though, to be honest. Yeah. Right? You know, there's very few hotels for black men. Exactly. And so there was another... Baha'i man from Minnesota who moved to Atlanta for a period of two years, Fred Mortensen. Yeah, so this yeah. is a guy, he he worked at the Atlanta Constitution, yes. like shipping department or something, yep. and he was a Baha'i. He was a Baha'i. He already was a Baha'i. I guess he became a Baha'i in Minnesota okay. and then just moved to Atlanta, so he moved his membership. And he taught the Baha'i faith to the first native white Georgian. And that was Lindsay. James Elmore Hayes. Sorry, James yeah. Elmore Hayes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, who yeah. also worked at the AJC. Who also worked at the AJC. Got so it. like when Lewis Gregory would come down, so again, like one of the tenets of Baha'i faith is elimination of racial prejudice. And that becomes a theme that you see. Is yes. something that which in, they struggled. Which in 20s, 30s, 40s Atlanta, it's like, good luck. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, even today, I mean, yeah. we're still oh, like, I... constantly, everyone's grappling with it, you know, but they were really dealing with it at that time. So 
James Elmore Hayes, Dr. Oakshet, Louis Gregory, and Louis Gregory's companion who would like travel with him and be kind of, I think, his secretary for a lot of things, Roy Williams, another black man. Um, they would just like meet in the cover of darkness, wow. like middle of the night. I they heard were that, about. that the, the white guy would have to kind of 2 a.m. Yeah. go out to try to get to Butler Street because they weren't allowed to be seen together in public. Really. Exactly. And also like to my understanding too, just looking back on stuff, Dr. Oakshet was a high society man. Yeah. Yeah. So I couldn't even imagine like also just for, I mean, he's buried at Westview. Like he was, has this kind of huge standing in the Atlanta community as well. It must've been even more, you know, yeah. Trying to risky do your reputation. That's really <laughs> exactly. interesting. Yeah. So th- there were speakers like that, that would come down. Um, and, but it was pretty much just Dr. Oaksha until the arrival of Olga Fink and Doris Everett. <laughs> Olga and Doris. Our ladies. <laughs> our ladies. So th- this ties to our cemetery trip, but, um, tell us about Olga and Doris because like, like always, right? Women are organizing and, mm-hmm. and started the archives, right? Yeah, I mean, they did. The reason we have all this is because they were just keeping their records. They did. <laughs> uh, I just, I feel like I know them now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, you know, like we'll talk about in a second too, is they didn't have children, they right? Didn't have Both children. of them. So, and sadly, at some point, when you don't have people to remember you, so, someone forgets, you know, like yeah. not to quote uh, that Disney movie, you know, where. Oh, Coco. Coco. <laughs> like, but really, you know, that the final death where someone forgets yeah. you. It's like, it is important to talk about people, so. Yeah, I mean, they're really fascinating as well, just like as as people. As people, yeah. Olga, let's start, pick whoever you want to start with. So I guess we'll start with Olga. Um, Olga was born in 1891 in New York. And um, according to her own biography that she wrote, she never published it, but yes. we do have it in the archives, and it's phenomenal. Oh, I want to read that. Oh, she has so many drafts of it, too. I mean, I, I love this lady. Um, so she wrote that she was such a timid, shy child that she was actually held back from school several times because she couldn't speak in class. Oh. So they thought she wasn't understanding anything. And I'm like, that is an incredible thing to know how who she becomes later on in her yeah. life, you know, that she really overcame that. So... Yeah, she was this really timid, shy child. She wanted to be a teacher. She always liked working with kids. And so she was one of the first teachers that was trained in the new Montessori method. So she was a Montessori teacher. And she worked at all-black schools in New York. She was working in, like, Hell's Kitchen at this black nursery doing the Montessori method with these kids. And obviously it was so poorly funded. this is, funded. what, 20s? This is, like, third, early 30s, early 30s, late 20s. Okay. Yeah. And um, it was so poorly funded. She, like, didn't have enough of a salary to have her own place. So she lived with one of the school board members. And at some point, she was so burnt out that she was like, I need to take, like, some sort of spiritual vacation. She was always a very spiritual woman, but she never um, – I think after World War One, there was this also sort of disillusionment, to my understanding, yeah, well, of a lot of people. war and Spanish flu. Yeah. Like, quote, so a lot of people don't realize it's like, that was some tough times. Yeah. And that's why you got the 1920s kind of decadence, because <clears throat> everyone's like, we just survived a world war and yeah. a global pandemic. And Olga writes, too, in her autobiography, like, in the churches, they were preaching the importance of this war and winning this war. And she was, I think there was this rise of pacifism, you know, at the time. And Baha'is are not pacifists, but... I think she was very much like, I can't understand why this man of God is preaching war. It didn't make sense to her. So she was on the search for something else. Um, and so her the school board members were like, if you want to take a vacation, we know this great place in Maine called Greenacre. So Greenacre is this beautiful, like, everyone should look it up. I mean, they still, still have exists? programming. Yeah, there's every summer there's camps. It's a Baha'i, like, campsite, essentially. Okay. Um, but it's this beautiful building. Abdul-Baha went and visited uh, the Prophet Baha'u'llah's son. 
it's a really peaceful place on the water. I've never been able to go. I'm trying to go this year. But there are four Baha'i schools around the country. So there's one in Maine, one in Michigan, one in New Mexico, and one in California. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, those school board members weren't Baha'is, but they were like, we found this place to be very relaxing. <laughs> you should go. Whatever works. Hey. <laughs> and so she went for three summers, and after her third summer, she became a Baha'i. Wow. So, so that's how she became Baha'i. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So she met with Louis Gregory. She met with all these, like, Louis Getzinger, who taught Dr. Oakshet yeah. the faith. She met with all these early, like, early Baha'is that were just so on fire with the love of the Baha'i faith that she was really enamored and attracted to it. And so right after she became a Baha'i, there was this encouragement from Abdul Baha, who was in Israel at the time. So Baha'i holy lands are in Haifa, Israel. So he was living in Haifa and he sent these letters to the United States. Baha'is and was like, you should go spread out and teach more people about the Baha'i faith in every single state. So there was this goal to have Baha'is in every state in the United States. So Olga really took that upon herself, and she moved to Mississippi. Very random. Very random. I think Louis Gregory encouraged her to go. It was Piney Woods, Mississippi. Okay. Which uh, today is actually like one of the most prestigious black boarding schools in the country. Really? Yeah. It wasn't in the 30s. Oh, it, was it was a middle school then. It was a school then. So she went to a school in Mississippi. Okay. Yeah. And so she was like a Montessori teacher at that school, but Got she it. also started teaching them like the kids like Baha'i songs and stuff like that. So again, it was an all-black school, and that's where she met Doris. So then how did Doris get there? What's her backstory? Doris um, is a little bit, uh, I think, more linear. So she was born in Illinois and in this tiny town called Ipava. Ipava? I can't pronounce it. It's literally like, I looked at the population, it's 460 people. It's tiny. Um, And she's buried there too. So this tiny town, she was born over there. And um, she had different encounters with the Baha'i faith all throughout her life because she was in Illinois. So... The temple for the Baha'is of North America is in Chicago. Okay. So she had actually visited when they were building the temple, and she visited the site before it was built, just coincidentally with, like, her school friends. And she would always have these weird dreams of this man with a long white beard, which was Abdul Baha. She found that later in her life, you know. So she was very spiritually in tune, but she ended up just, like, in Mississippi as well, you know. But And then at that point, she had been a Baha'i, or she was a Baha'i. She wasn't a Baha'i. Oh, she wasn't yet. No. She just, like stumbled upon it a couple of times. So she moved to Mississippi and met Olga and um, they became good friends and they, Olga was this like artistic, she was a poet. And so um, she had to write this poem for some event that was happening at the school. I can't really remember what it was. And that night Doris had a dream of Olga sitting in bed writing the poem and over her was that man with the long white beard, Abdul Baha. So she had this interesting dream and she told Olga about it and Olga was like, you know, I think I know who that is. And so that's how Doris really was taught the Baha'i faith. So they were working at the school together um, until I think there was some incident, you know, don't quote me on this. I can't remember. Something had happened that was a little dicey and they were like, okay, it's time to move out of Mississippi. But but that made the move to Atlanta. That made the move back to their hometowns for a period of six months. And so Olga, Doris still wasn't a Baha'i, but Olga was like, I want to keep teaching and being part of this like plan to have Baha'is in every state. So she talked to the teaching council in Chicago and they were like, Dr. Oakshet is not doing well. You should go to Atlanta. He wasn't doing well physically. Physically. He was ill. He was ill. So they were like, they, when, if he dies, there's not going to be another Baha'i in Atlanta. You should go. So she reaches out to Doris and was like, want to come with me? 
And Doris was like, sure, sounds good. Let's open a nursery. So they moved down to Atlanta. They so visit. 1937. 1937. 1937, they come to Atlanta. They okay. come to Atlanta. And two days later, they meet with Dr. Oakshet. And Dr. Oakshet teaches Doris the Baha'i faith. Oh. And after that, she, she declares. declares and she becomes okay. a Baha'i. And now let's talk about they lived in that house on Juniper. Yes, 1049 okay. Juniper. 1049 Juniper. Which doesn't exist anymore. I know, which like a lot of this, I was typing into Google Maps. I'm like, oh, good construction fencing, you know? So, but it's kind of around where Joe's on Juniper was, like that, it that was, stretch. It was that. It was. It was that, Joe's on Juniper. That's what I thought. I was doing it today and I was like, wait a second, was it Joe's on it Juniper? It was Jonas, Joe's okay, on that's Juniper. that's even wilder. We so have the, a picture of it at the exhibit too like the original photos so the joe's on juniper building yes. house was their house yes. which they also operated as a montessori school yes okay and this um, one was for all white children at like the council of lewis gregory he was like i think for atlanta we got to start with white people got to start with white yeah people. which i can't even fathom two white women opening a school for black children in 1937 yeah. in, in midtown in that, midtown that's not Imagine. so i get that so they so they open this school mm-hmm. they're living there but if I remember the notes, they are having meetings there, though, right? They're they having are. lectures there. Okay. And then wasn't there an incident? There was. Okay. There's a few. So so in that time, too, so Dr. Oakshet passes five weeks after they arrive. Wow. And um, what's really interesting is he actually left a ring that Abdu'l-Bahá gave him to this other priest, Father Harkness. The guy that spoke at his funeral? Yes. Okay. And he never gave the ring back, oh. so we don't know where the ring is. Have we traced the Harkness ancestors? Trying to find oh it. I mean, if you want to help me with that. <laughs> it's but like they random tried, email, I think like... in like the 40s, they tried to find it and they like couldn't. Oh. Yeah, so that's somewhere in Atlanta. But anyway, so that's just... I love aside. putting out little calls. Anybody related Anybody? to the Harknesses that has a random ring, <laughs> let us know. We would love to take a look. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to look at it. <laughs> so yeah, so Dr. Oakshit passes away and um, they open their school. It's not very successful. And um, Doris has to take like other side jobs just like a, a yeah, nanny. Yeah, she was a maid or a nanny. Yeah. I remember the census record. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she was a maid because Olga actually fell ill three times and was hospitalized three times due to starvation. <gasps> like they were oh really struggling and yeah. she refused to leave Atlanta. <laughs> She's wow. like there are no other guys here. I'm staying. Um she was a these two women were organized and tenacious. Wow. And single-minded, and I just, I just admire them so much. Um, so yeah, so she was actually hospitalized for a hundred days, and she almost didn't make it, um, but she did, of course. And so th- this was a period of struggle. So in that time, it's the depression. So, it's the depression. I mean, all the other things that exactly. are going on in the world, and they keep having to close the school because Doris uh, Olga keeps getting sick. Wow. Yeah. So. This school doesn't do too well, but either way, they use it as like you're right, like a it's like a lecture. Front. I it's mean, like not, yeah, not to put it in yeah. that way, but it was it a was like bit they had the school during the day, and at night they would like have all these meetings yes, and stuff yes. like that. So um, the Lindsays, actually, we can talk about the Lindsays. Yes, now. let's talk about the Lindsays. So yeah. Raymond Lindsay is a Raymond white man, Lindsay. and his wife uh, what is Estelle. Estelle, mm-hmm. where and I I've lost on where he learned the Baha'i faith. Yeah, so he actually was attending Doctor Oakshet's sermons oh. at the Liberal Catholic Church with. Him and his wife and his mom, Cleo, and um, I guess their kid, uh, their daughter, Rama, I guess when she was born. So Dr. Oakshet was constantly stocking the public library with Baha'i texts. I heard this where if it, it, it was – get so he was stocking the library, but yes. then who's a person that if someone checked out a Baha'i book – 
was it? Dorian? It was Olga. It was Olga. <laughs> Olga would be like, excuse me, who checked that out? Yep. Please give me their address. Yep. Which I think is hilarious. It's amazing. He's going to the library to like see if your book is still there. And then when it's not, stalking the person that rented it and being like, how did you like that? Imagine her, these two women who have like no connections in Atlanta coming down and they're like, how are we going to find people that have already been like heard about the Baha'i faith that would want to know more in about the it? In the internet era. Yes. Which you have to do by stalking the library. Exactly. <laughs> so she sees that these people keep checking out the same book, Baha'u'llah in the New Era. And so she pesters the librarian enough until she gives them the name to like the Lindsay family. So, oh, the Lindsay family is the one that we're checking it out. Yes. That's great. It's okay. amazing. Okay. And so um, they go to their house and actually Estelle Lindsay says that when she opened the door, she saw Doris there and Dr. Oakshet, who had passed, was standing next to her. So she really, like, instantly, I think, felt very connected to to them. So, And Estelle Lindsay was very, to my understanding, like, a very spiritually in tune. Yeah, she had a lot of dreams. She had a lot of dreams and stuff. And you'll you'll hear about these dreams, and I don't know know if this is, like, everybody's cup of tea, but I do find it interesting, too, because it's in all of the, the accounts in the archives where it's, like, these dreams do help people either decide to become Baha'is or feel like they have some sort of calling or purpose. And it actually propelled the community a lot in these certain ways. Like Mr. Burns had the dream that encouraged him to build the center, the Baha'i center. It was a dream. You're right. right. You know, so I I, I tell these stories of the dreams, not just because it's like a woo-woo-y kind of thing, but because it actually propelled the future of the community in a lot of ways. you know, to do things like we're going to say with the Lindsay's, to have these interracial meetings, you you don't do that, um, you know, with flippantly, right? Like you have to be really convicted and know you're going to deal with a lot of issues to do this. So it's not a flippant thing. I know I thought in a dream, you know? Yeah. They would have the dream and then like listen to it. Yes, that's what it, okay. It's like, okay, (laughs) that's my my charge. Yeah. Yeah. So this house, and we talked about this, the Lindsay's were living on West End Avenue, mm-hmm. which it's right across from Spelman now, yes. but does it's a field. <laughs> but but they become a so, theme of this story. Yes, <laughs> the theme of Atlanta. Are you looking for a building? It is now a grassy field yeah. or a, a new development. Um, so they were living in West End Avenue near the HBCUs, which I feel like we kind of guessed that the Lindsays really become interested in integrating mm-hmm. and which maybe back up that that isn't wasn't that a tenant of Baha'i faith yeah it was so there's a one of the major tenets of the Baha'i faith in talking about world unity is the elimination of racial prejudice so understanding that I think is something that every generation is grappling with and like this for Baha'is and the wider world right like this is not anything new to anybody but I think like for Southerners that were becoming Baha'is, that was something really abstract to grasp. It's like, okay, yeah, sure, I I view them as my equal, but what does that actually look like on a day-to-day basis? It's inviting people to your home when yes. it's illegal. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of, I think we were talking about Doris and Olga to back up a little bit, but like, their home on Juniper Street, they invited Louis Gregory to come give a talk oh, one Louis night. Oh, Louis Gregory spoke there. He spoke there. He, he spoke there a few times, but one time he was speaking, and the landlord knocked on their door and was like because he found out there was a black man in his building and Olga had to hold the door closed while Doris got Louis Gregory and all the like attendees of the talk because there was black attendees there wow she had to get them all out and they got evicted the next day no yeah so that's what I'm saying like this was such a everybody was like really risking it out here and that was not the first like run in with these kinds of incidences of course and now like backing up to the Lindsay's so by the 19 so imagine Doris and Olga come in 1937 and the community is just 
slowly starting to swell yeah. in the next two years. When was it? It's not till 1940 mm-hmm. that they start a formal assembly. Assembly. Okay. Yeah. So sorry. Okay. So for yeah. the for three years, really, they're building up. They're building it up. Yeah. So in order to form an assembly, so I think something also about the Baha'i Faith that you should know is that there are no clergy in the Baha'i Faith. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So everything is it's it's a democratically elected form of sort of administration and government. So every local community has nine members that the community elects to take care of their administrative affairs and guide the community. And there's no campaigning. There's no, it's like, you know your community best. Who do you think is fit yeah. to, to serve the community? So it's every year. And that's why we have the exhibit now during the period of Resvan. You said yeah, there was a word where I was like, I don't know what this yeah. means, but yeah. it's a thing. Okay. Resvan is a period of 12 <laughs> days. It's when um, Baha'u'llah in, the, in 1863 sort of declared that he is the manifestation of God. He was in this garden of Resvan in Baghdad. Um, and so that's why Baha'is celebrate that time. So that's when we have all of our voting and elections is in this 12 day cycle, which is why the exhibit is happening now because people will be in there in the center anyway. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So we had our elections actually like on Thursday, but, um, so that was when like all the Baha'is came to the exhibit and it it was really lovely. Yeah. (laughs) So we were learning about the first assembly. Um, so yeah, so that kind of explains like they needed nine members people to be behind. To lead, in a sense. Yeah, okay, so exactly. I see what you're saying. They were building up to find those nine people. Exactly, exactly. So I think, like, you... Yeah, so you can't, like, officially form an assembly to the national and, like, report it to the National Baha'i Assembly unless you have over nine people. So they needed to get to that special number and that are above 21 years old. Yeah, they, they have enough people now. So all those travel teachers that were coming they would form these little study groups around the city. And sort of the policy at that time was that there would be the the study groups to study the Baha'i faith didn't have to be integrated just for easiness like sake. But all of the community meetings, we, we call them feasts, which is every 19 days we have like a large community gathering um, as part of the Baha'i calendar is 19 days and we call them feasts. So feasts would always be integrated or local assembly meetings would be integrated or... And where were those, those being kind of, held? People's houses. Oh, okay. So this And is, even to date, like we still just, we okay. sometimes use a center, sometimes people host it at their houses. Baha'i stuff is very, it's a little casual in that okay. way. And so is this what the Lindsay's were hosting? So they were hosting a study group. They were trying to have one of those, their study groups be They were trying to integrate the study group. Okay. Yeah. That, which had not been done. Hadn't been done. Uh, All of them previously had been segregated. So... A couple of these people that had become Baha'is, but they sort of signed their card because they wanted to get to that number. So that's why the first assembly was formed in 1940. Officially. Uh, But we don't recognize the first assembly of Atlanta until 1941 because there was kind of a miscommunication. So that's where this gets confusing. I'm like explaining a lot. It's a little disorienting, but it was, there was a huge miscommunication. So there was this one all white study group that was studying and they just wanted to get to this number. So everybody signed their Baha'i cards, they declared. And they sent the information to the National Assembly. They're like, we have enough members to form an assembly. And the assembly was all white. And this assembly did not have like a thorough understanding, like I'm talking about, of the Baha'i tenets, you know, of the Baha'i principles, especially elimination of (laughs) racial prejudice. (laughs) So they went to this, the Lindsay's house one night to participate. So the Lindsay's invited all of their black neighbors and all these new white Baha'is. And they were like... Let's study. They studied. Everyone was fine. And then all of the neighbors left and just the white Baha'is remained. And they were like, we don't want to do this again. We didn't like this. Oh. So that night, Estelle has this dream of 
she and Raymond are going up in this car. Yeah, like a, in a mountain or something. Yeah. And there's black and white children. There's black and white children all like around their car and they're really struggling to get up this hill. And Abdul Baha, again, the son of Baha'u'llah, is giving books to all of these kids. And so she takes it as like, we're going to try again. We're going to host another interracial meeting. So that's why I'm saying these dreams are also significant because it like propels yes, yes. people to do to act. And so she and Raymond host another meeting the following week. And this meeting gets broken up by the police. <gasps> and the police go to Raymond and they're like, next time you host this, we're going to arrest you. If you want to meet with your black neighbors, you go to their house. They're not allowed to come to yours. So, yeah. And this is where he took out something, right? And he said, we are an organized religion. Yeah, so they actually, he didn't end up getting arrested because they were studying the specific Baha'i book. And that book had, like, an incorporation on it that showed that it was a federally recognized religion. But the so police were still like, The police were like, we okay, this, like, we don't really care about that. We're, we won't arrest you for tonight, but just don't do this yeah. again, essentially. But, like, all of this stuff about incorporating is so important. And it becomes more relevant, like, later in in the mid-1940s when the, like, official assembly does incorporate with the city of Atlanta. It offered a lot of protection in these future really? meetings. Yeah. So this was the first time that we saw, like, those sort of official incorporation of the Secretary of State and, like, the United yeah. States. It, it really saved the vibe And that so day. what happens in 1941, the reason you recognize that is that because that was actually interracial? So what happened was... All this stuff is going back to the National Baha'i Assembly in Chicago. And they're like, okay, these Atlanta is like not understanding. <laughs> they're, like, they're, not getting <laughs> they're not really understanding like <laughs> integrated meetings, you know? So Louis Gregory comes down, and this other um, very significant figure in the Baha'i faith, Dorothy Baker, she's a white woman. She also comes down. Louis Gregory comes down first, and he has a talk at Doris and Olga's place. Felix said mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to also – and then the whole National Assembly was like, we're going to have a whole conference for you guys at the Biltmore Hotel. Wow. And it's going to be integrated. And this is 1941? This is 1940. 1940. Yeah. And I read, like, the Biltmore had to specially approve yeah. this because it was an interracial It conference. was a whole process. And it turned out the attendees were three-quarters of them, of the audience, were black. Black from Atlanta. Yep. Wow. So I don't know if this was the first integrated meeting that Biltmore ever hosted, but like I wouldn't be surprised wow. because they had to go through a lot of red tape. After all of this, these meetings of like Louis Gregory, Dorothy Baker, all yeah. these national, national Baha'i, like, national conference, Baha'is all over the southern states are coming to visit, hear these talks specifically about race unity. Like this is the focus of the conference. A couple of those white assembly members drop. Really? That's what I'm saying. They, it was a miscommunication. They did not have a thorough understanding of what was. It was like this. Yeah. They, they, it was just, they just. It was yeah. an immature mis- yes. assembly that wasn't ready to be formed yet. So after this meeting, there was a black study group that was happening at the same time. And one of the members, S.C. Robertson, really wanted to declare, but that all-white assembly was unaware of it. They didn't even know. And so after the convention at the Biltmore, she goes to the assembly that now doesn't have enough members to actually be in assembly. She's like, I want to become a Baha'i. So S.C. Robertson becomes the first black Georgian to become a Baha'i. Yes, and she lived on... 850 Beckwith. So she declares in 1941 1940 december of 1940 oh oh so i mean it was like so the conference happened in in november and she declares in december like she was ready to become a baha'i and And she'd been hosting them at her home so she started hosting all these baha'i meetings at her home like especially for black visitors and black study groups but also she you know she could host everybody 
And so um, April comes around, which again is Resvon. That's like the by-election time. And this time, right before Resvon, two other black women declare and they become Baha'is. So now this new 1941 assembly has three black women on it and the rest are these other white Baha'is, including Raymond Lindsay, Doris Ebert, Olga Fink, Raymond's mother, Cleo Lindsay. So the photo you have in the exhibit that says first assembly. That is the 1941 assembly. Yes. 1941 to 1942 assembly. And it was interracial. I mean, it was interracial. So we've always had since then an interracial assembly. So that's the one that was sent to national. And that photo, that history of that photo is so fascinating because, Oh, you said something about they were afraid to take it. Yeah. They couldn't find a photographer. They could trust enough that would take a, photo of an interracial meeting and then what if the photographer made duplicates and it got in the wrong hands so there was so much security that had to go around taking this picture that we actually don't have it in our archives it's at the national archives because they immediately mailed it to chicago wow um i do want to talk about olga and doris's their house on sells avenue yeah is later so I don't want to miss out on Leroy Burns, mm-hmm. obviously, and then Olive. It's also important to talk about the 1945 incorporation. Oh, so... Because that affects their Sells Avenue house. So in 1945, so what is in, this incorporation? Right. So basically, during World War II, obviously, there's a lot of movement happening in the Atlanta Baha'i community. People come in, they're drafted, they leave, you know. So the oh. assembly is a little bit in flux as well at that time. Um, Raymond Lindsay, because he had a limp, he never was drafted. Oh, yeah, he had polio as a child. Yeah, okay. he had polio as a child. But all these other men that would sort of come in, and then their families, they would have to leave. So 1945 comes, and the assembly is stable enough. It, they've now had an assembly for four years. The Baha'i community is growing. They're like, we need to incorporate with the city of Atlanta. Oh. So they put all these ads in the local paper, like, the Baha'is are asking to incorporate, all this stuff. They get their incorporation papers from the Secretary of State. And those are so important because in 1947, Doris and Olga had moved after they got evicted from their Juniper Street. They moved to Sells Avenue, and like and this you is sent West me all End, stuff. yes. West and End. I and when you said Sells Avenue to me when yeah. we met, I was like, oh, well, let me tell you because if you know Sells Avenue now, it is intersected by I-20 essentially, yeah, very much on purpose because it was like the racial hotspot when the so the the demographics of the West End are changing. Sells Avenue was like bombings and racial violence episodes and intimidate. So it's weirdly fitting, right, that yeah. these women are living on Sells Avenue. And part of me is like, I don't think it's a coincidence. Oh, I doubt it. Yeah, they they were just like that, but that's speculation, you know. So they um, are hosting a whole bunch of Baha'i meetings at, at their, their house. This is their private home, so it's private not home. operating as a school or anything. No, okay. Yeah, twelve forty seven Sells Avenue. They're having so many meetings there, and then. Essie Robertson, before she moved to Conyers in 1946 at Beckwith, like most of the meetings are being held either on Sells Avenue or on Beckwith okay. at this point. Um, and so, because they're kind of, I think, the most like stable people were staying the longest over there. Oh, and um, 600 Magnolia Street was Yeah, that was Teresa, Olive. Was that Olive? Olive Relaford was 600 Magnolia. Okay, yeah. So Olive becomes a Baha'i, I believe. 1943. Yep. 1943. And so she starts hosting. And she's a all black these woman. Black and so women. she's also hosting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And she becomes important for Leroy Burns later because he goes to her house oh, for study groups. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So back. So Olga and Doris. So Olga are and Doris meetings, are holding meetings. Again, and, interracial meetings in 1940s in a racial hotspot. Yep. Yep. In their home. And they had received. So back to broader Baha'i history, after Abdul Baha dies, 
he leaves in his will and testament the Baha'i faith to his grandson named Shoghi Effendi. And Shoghi Effendi, we call him the guardian because he's the one that sort of set up this whole Baha'i administration. Well, he was following Baha'u'llah's writings about how Baha'i administrative order should be set up. He's the one that starts like really enforcing it and, and organizing it so it actually becomes a reality. So when he passes away, there are currently no... we we only operate on this like democratically elected system. So we have also nine members in Israel that we call the universal house of justice. And they're sort of the governing body of the, of the Baha'is around the world. And they're elected every five years. Actually, the election is happening this week. Oh, okay. It's exciting. Um, but in any case, so Shoghi Effendi, Doris and Olga would constantly be writing him letters oh, really? asking questions about, should our <laughs> assembly <laughs> do this? What is the law about this? What They were so meticulous. With, and you have those letters. We have these letters. Wow. But we have copies of them because they sent the original ones to the National Archives. Yeah. But they would like type all of their copied letters too to make sure we had everything in our archive. It's amazing. Organized, organized women. I mean, fantastic. So they had written a letter to Shoghi Effendi um, and they had asked him a couple of questions. And he had sent a response. And I actually don't know if it was Doris and Olga or the local assembly as a whole wrote him a letter. Um, I can't find where that original. But he had sent a response. And he had written something along the lines of, the Baha'is must, must be like soldiers unto attack. And as they're reading that sentence, they get this <gasps> knock on the door. And it's this white mob, this white supremacist mob, the West End Homeowners Cooperative. Yeah, oh, yep, 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 yep. I yep. was a Klan Jr. Yep. Not called the Klan, but that's what they were. Exactly. And they are like, bring them out. Really graphic, all this stuff. Tell them to come out. There's like a group of 40 or 50 people on the lawn of Doris <gasps> and Olga. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so all of the black Baha'is go to the back kitchen and they're just like saying prayers and all the white Baha'is go to the front of the house. And... I believe it was Doris. She brings out their incorporation papers and she's like, we are incorporated by the state of Georgia. If the police, local police don't protect us, we will go to the FBI. And so she starts threatening to call the FBI because she has their group of 50 white supremacists that are like threatening. Yeah. And then, um, some of the Baha'is are you, do you believe in, in Christ? And the guys are like, yeah, yeah, we're Christian. And he's like, what would Christ have to say for you right now? And they, like some of them like hung their heads no. in shame. So they were also like trying to be like, what are you doing? Yes. You know, but it, obviously the crowd was like growing. Also neighbors are coming out. Like it's like becoming a whole thing. So the police finally arrive. And because they have their incorporation papers, they actually, the police escort all of the black Baha'is home. Wow. Like make sure everyone's safely delivered on their doorstep. They break it up. But What's left on the pillar of Doris and Olga's home is this clan sticker. No. So now they're like, okay, this is getting, this is way too yeah, dangerous. This is dangerous. We need a center. And that's what the police advised them to. They're like, if you guys are a religious incorporated organization, then you need to have your own meeting space because that le- offers you more legal protection than a private residence. Yeah. So is this what leads them to go to Marietta Street? Yes. And this was 44 Marietta Street, which we talked about right 44 down. 44 and a half. 44 and a half. I Whatever that means. Addresses. So funny. And this was really right in downtown Atlanta. I, I yeah. walked by it every day. I didn't realize. And they, do we know when they moved in there? They moved in there, um, I believe, 1948. 1948. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how long are they able to worship there? So they're there for, I think, two years because okay. the building, they knew the building was going to be renovated in 49. Okay. So they knew they had a limited amount of time there. But they were also hosting regular meetings at like... 
Phyllis Wheatley YMCA, YWCA, whichever one it was, the Butler Street YMCA. So they're also had these relationships around the city where they're like... In safe places for black people. Exactly. Exactly. So... All this to say, this is where all of Relaford's 600 Magnolia yeah, Street comes in. Yeah, because Leroy Burns. Burns comes in. Okay, yes. let's do Leroy. Leroy Burns. So he actually heard about the faith because of Doris and Olga. So when Dr. Oakshed was passing, he gave them a bunch of like churches where people seemed to be really receptive to hearing about the Baha'i faith. Um, because Baha'is would also go and speak. Like certain churches would invite oh, yeah, they, them to come yeah, in. I've seen that in my researches. Different churches would have lecturers from yep. different religions even. Yeah. Yep. And so one of those was Leroy Burns' church. But they go to this church in 1937, and they sit in the same pew, and they tell them all about the Baha'i faith, and then they never go back to that church again. <laughs> I think they had, I think they were, I think Olga got gems. sick, like, you know. So they had met him, though, and he made an impression, and they made an impression on him. So then they are, go to Olive Relaford's house at 600 Magnolia Street in uh, 1945, and they run into Leroy Burns. Oh. So somehow he met Olive Relaford, and I don't actually have a record of how that happened. Um, I'm hoping maybe one of the local Baha'is might be able to tell me eventually. I'm slowly starting to get these stories and collect them. But yeah, so he declares and becomes a Baha'i in July of 1945. Okay. And immediately is like, you know becomes part of the assembly and he is just like kind of becomes the caretaker a little bit of like community. So even that 44 and a half, like he was, there's all these like subcommittees obviously is like, there's an archive committee, there's like a building maintenance yeah. committee, all that kind of stuff. So he's part of the building maintenance committee and he was a postal worker and he was about to reach retirement age. So he was a black postal worker. Black postal we worker. We don't know exactly where he lives yet, but we're going to, we're going to find out. We're going to find out <laughs> where he lives. And so he's a Baha'i. He's, he's a Baha'i. His wife doesn't become a Baha'i. He had bought a couple of properties around Edgewood and Auburn Avenue. And so... So along Edgewood Avenue. Mm-hmm. So as the Baha'is are at the 44 and a half Marietta Street location, he has a dream one night where Abdul Baha, again, comes to him in this dream. And he says, you're building yourself a home when I still have none. And basically referencing how, like, the Atlanta Baha'is don't have a home. Yeah. They're about to be kicked out of this building. Same place that they're left. You know, there's, like, barely any funds in the community you know people like donate what they can of course but you know there's not nothing there's nothing like we're still five years out of the depression I mean, right yeah, yeah it wasn't a time right after the much. war yeah. like i mean everyone's getting back on their feet yeah. there's like 20 people in the baha'i community i mean it's like tiny <laughs> i think that year was like 22 baha'is in the entire city of atlanta and so yeah so after this dream he decides to dedicate um, that property, 379 Edgewood, because those numbers, 379, add up to 19, oh, which is a Baha'i holy number. You said that. So that was the address. That was the address. So it was just meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so he donates that building. So he and his son actually bake all of the bricks in their backyard and they transport them on, on the, the trolley. Car, which would ring right in front of it. Yep. And builds the center um, on Edgewood Avenue. And so Raymond Lindsay was a building inspector. So he made sure everything was up to code. We have this fantastic Yes, you have picture. photos. Was, you have photos of him baking the material, yep. basically. You have the photo of Raymond Lindsay, you know, looking up at the ceiling, like yep. he's checking stuff. Yep. And, and so they, and, and it was Leroy and his son built it, right? Yeah. To take together, which yeah. is insane. Yeah. And then when was it completed? Do we know? Um, so I believe it was completed either 1949, 1950, somewhere okay. around that time. Um, and so, yeah, the Baha'is have been using that Edgewood Avenue Center since... Yeah. 
since that's, then. That that is where I come in because yeah. again, I have passed it many times. I've seen it, no idea what it meant, just saw the words on it. Yep. But it's been on Edgewood Avenue since like 1950 and it being has. used by the Baha'i. And what's interesting about it? So he actually built. So the way that the center is laid out, if anybody ever wants to come visit, is it's two stories. So the stairs leading up to it, there's 19, 19 stairs, stairs, you of said. Course. Okay. And, um, and actually it's really sweet. Like we have this record stereo speaker that has like a nine pointed star carved on it that like Leroy Burns had created. So there's all these like beautiful oh. touches that are also part of the building. There's a lot of love and care that went into it, but the bottom part of the Baha'i center was actually used as a bakery. And the Baha'is really? would meet upstairs. Oh, so it was like retail space that yeah. they rented out. I, I believe actually like the his bakery. wife okay. ran the bakery. But yeah, so I, I've i heard different accounts. And this kind of just goes to oral history. I'm not totally sure what's true because I haven't fully dived into like yeah. the, oh, yeah, the 50s or 60s. The, you guys go check the oral history. But <laughs> the oral history is that it was they didn't want to have the meetings on the first floor just for safety purposes, which is why all the meetings would be held on the ah, second floor. It just okay. offered that much more protection yeah. to be on that level. Um, but is like a block away from so where... We talked about Ebenezer, yeah. Dr. King. I mean, it is in the center of everything that was, especially civil rights. Exactly. And this is something we talked about before. You really aren't going past the 50s for the purpose of the exhibit. Yeah. But I mean, when I typed in into the Daily World archives, Baha'i stuff just comes up everywhere. It's almost like too much because it's listed listed in every single religious notice. So it's hard to like sort through what's quote unquote news or something. They, we had like this, and we still have this ongoing relationship with the King Center. So the, the parades that would happen every year, the Baha'is were like very hand in hand part of them, especially in the nineties. The photos I have from the nineties, like right there you know awesome. so it's it because they're all they're neighbors you yeah. know everybody's neighbors on the street and and the you king know, center's mission is very similar exactly too, that was the purpose and so many there was a huge influx of baha'is that came into the baha'i faith in the 60s and 70s really? during the civil rights movement yeah so a lot of the community members that you know still come and meet with us and all this stuff they that's when they became baha'is so it's been interesting collecting all this data for the project or research for the project because Everybody tells their stories about Olga, about Doris, oh, about the Lindsays, about Essie Robertson, you know, all of these like um, members of the community. All these Baha'is from that became Baha'is in the 60s, they have all been really helping me with these stories of these early Baha'is in Atlanta because that's who taught them the faith. So we're like two generations, yeah. three generations out from that. At this and point. you, and so then this leads us to we took a field trip. To the cemetery to yes. find Olga. Oh no, yes, Olga. Olga. Yeah, so we so and we knew the land lot or yep. whatever. It's just you know we walked like nine thousand steps because in a very specific area we're like she's got to be right here. <laughs> yeah. We went to the office where yep. someone gave us a really weird map and then we're like we, we have walked that spot nine hundred times, and you discovered that she her grave had been covered up by rainstorm and red clay. Yep. And, but she was under there. She was under and there. So they're like cleaning it up yeah. and kind of raising it back up or whatever Shout they do. Shout out to Peggy and Lori at Greenwood. <laughs> been so it helpful. Was Peggy the lady with the map? Because she was hilarious. Peggy I mean, was the lady with the map. Lori's the one that when I went back there, I was like, can you guys please like do bring this up? Yes. And she went into all of her files and like really just made That's sure amazing. that everything. And actually we found out that um, Doris bought a plot next to her, but Doris... Uh, died after Olga and she I think had dementia and so she went to go live with her um, nieces you said this one of the one of the quote-unquote rules is you are buried within 
a oh, two-hour drive. Yeah, okay. like a like a certain distance. A you certain don't want to travel over like an hour, two-hour distance of where you're you of pass where away. you pass away. So so that's why they're not buried near each other. Exactly. But Olga is buried near. Victor- America, Victoria, that yeah. person who also had some connection. Yeah. And then, you know, an, an aside, but they all lived together in a house on Cascade. They did. Which is, like, I, again, like. Their, Andrew Young was their neighbor. Really? Yeah. This is, I mean, to me, I'm always just women in an era where really you had to be married to, to like have any financial security yeah. or whatever. When when women aren't doing that, it's such a little act of resistance. You know, it's it like, is. no, we're all going to have a little commune. You know, we're all going to live in this house together. And I, I was talking to um, one of the women in the Baha'i community, and she was telling me how she used to go to Doris and Olga's place on Cascade every Thursday to study these books. And she was explaining like what the house kind of looked like because that house still does exist it does. and it just yes. went up. It was on the market like a month ago. Oh. I wanted to tour it, but it went under contract <laughs> just real fast. Funded. Um, <laughs> and she was telling me like their house was like a living library and archive oh, because the reason I know any of this information really and truly is because Olga and Doris took such notes every year and they told the story like they have this Atlanta early Atlanta Baha'i history. From 1937 to 1945, they wrote like a 30-page document. And then from 1945 to 1950, they wrote another 30-page document. So they made all of this work very easy yeah. for me, you know. Um, I would say for me, for future generations. Yes, yes, yeah. you know? And you're doing some work that someone's going to pick up exactly, later. Exactly, exactly. And like so many people, like Lillian Garnett wrote her own autobiography, which is enormously helpful, you know, like for me also to learn about these things and be like, oh, you were taught by this person and then this happened and this. You can sort of put all the links together. So it's been really cool. I actually have an update for you with Cemetery stuff because I went to Southview. Yes. And all of Relaford was buried at Southview. And Roberta Caldwell, who was on that first 1941 assembly, she was a black woman that she was buried at Southview as well. So I went to go find them. And Leroy Burns is buried over there. Okay. The entire Burns family. The Burns family graves are like very well maintained, beautiful condition. It's great. All of Relaford's is at a temporary marker. No. So hers is kind of, you know. And then Roberta Colwell's is in the historic non permanent care section. She doesn't even have a marker. Really? Yeah. Oh, I feel like project time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that was really remarkable. Also, like, shout out to Miss Miss Winnie. Oh, Miss um, Winnie is the best. She's awesome. She's amazing. She, and you know, she's the great yeah. granddaughter of, you know, the guy that started the cemetery. But, she was, yeah. like, telling me their whole story. I mean, yeah. she was fantastic. She's, and what's so lovely, too, is she was helping me. And then she was like, who, who are all these people? I'm like, oh, they're early Baha'is. I'm, I'm the archivist. And she goes, you should have told me you're a Baha'i. Bill Allison is on the board of Southview. Bill Allison is a Baha'i. Is a Baha'i. Yes. His mother is the one that taught Essie Roberts in the faith. No. So that's what I'm saying. Like the Baha'i community is tiny. It, but but and now I'm seeing it. So You're now after it. meeting you, it'll pop up and it's yeah. like blah 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 Baha'i. And I'm like, oh my god! I almost sent it to you two days. I was literally researching like shopping malls, and it somehow took me to a person that was Baha'i. And I'm like, oh, I gotta send this to, to Layla, you know. But so you know. I think that's what happens is like you don't know it exists and then when yep. you do, you're like, oh, there's yep. all these people out And here. you'll see too, I think what's really exciting just talking about Edgewood Avenue now is so there's right next to it is a shop called Created Noble um, and that's run by um, other Baha'is, Black Baha'i family and they have this incredible like shop just supporting like black arts, black businesses, all that kind of stuff and they host like these like gorgeous spaces for 
arts and meditation and community building activities. So that whole sort of street is like being repurposed. And then next to their shop is opening up the headquarters of the Race Amity organization. Yes, I saw that news, which is so exciting. Very exciting. So they're starting to break ground this year for that. And that is turning into like a workspace, like a shared workspace as well. So what's really, and that's also being spearheaded by mostly also Baha'is. And I think that's something that I feel really like proud of also doing with this project with the archives is seeing the ripple effects throughout every generation because it's such a small community too, but everyone's really committed to this process of community building what you you know what you believe yeah, in like yeah, you said it's exactly. not not just not just saying the words but no. really living it. Exactly. So it's like how are we going to achieve peace on just a local level of like our neighborhood. So like looking at Edgewood Avenue as one of those places, like this center has been here doing this work for like, you know, how many years? 70 years now? It's remarkable. So now there's a whole other legacy that's like just starting to form as well, which I find really exciting. And like, I'm like, how are we going to document this? I know. (laughs) And so speaking of, when are you running the exhibit until? So the exhibit is going until May 2nd. May 2nd. And I have a Google form for people to fill out if anybody wants to come give a tour. But also even after the exhibit is closed, I'm so happy to give tours of the Baha'i Center. So this is coming out because this will be, this will be May, I'm sorry, this will be April 28th. So it only gives people couple days but if you know they can talk to you contact you i'll put all that stuff in the show notes so there you have it the story of atlanta's baha'i community i have all of the links we talked about in the show notes if you'd like to see the exhibit or contact her with any questions all of that is there for you Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. There's also a Patreon link in the show notes if you want to support the work. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.